Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode is the first in a series on Idaho Governor Brad Little's WGA Chair Initiative, Working Lands, Working Communities. Governor Little's initiative is examining the interdependent relationships between Western communities and state and federal land managers, as well as the role that local communities play in successful land management and planning processes. In this episode, WGA Policy Advisor Kevin Moss sits down with Emily Fife, Utah State Conservationist for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, to discuss how NRCS programs help unify conservation and restoration activities across public and private lands. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining today's episode of Out West. This is the first episode as part of Idaho Governor Brad Little's Working Lands, Working Communities Initiative. Today's episode will examine opportunities to support cross-boundary land conservation projects. I'm Kevin Moss. I'm a policy advisor here at WJ, and I'm very excited to welcome Emily Fife. Emily is the Utah State Conservationist for the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing today? Good, Emily. Thanks so much for joining us. Really looking forward to this conversation. And just to get things going, would love to hear a little bit about your background, how you came to work at NRCS, and you know, if there is anything about NRCS's mission that really spoke to you when you were, you know, looking for employment opportunities. So I actually grew up in Northeast Ohio, worked on some horse ranches, and my grandfather was an ag producer. So I have a little bit of ag connection uh, just from my childhood. But when I was in college, I volunteered for NRCS. And one of the things that I loved the most about NRCS's mission is that we're really driven locally. You know, we really have that connection to local communities. And as we were established, we were established with the conservation districts as a key partner and then being made up of farmers and ranchers in those communities, I think really just brings the federal government and state connection uh, together. And I, I really believe that that's what best makes conservation happen is when we have that federal, state, local partnership so we can really address those key issues that those communities need. Yeah, that theme is certainly a, a central one of Governor Little's initiative for his year's chairs kind of synchronizing some of those activities across the local, state, and federal lenses. So in your opening comments, though, you did mention farmers and ranchers. We recently hosted a workshop in Utah that you participated in as part of the initiative. And some of your comments focused on the work that NRCS in Utah does to support rangeland health. was just wondering if you could expand on some of that and give an overview of NRCS programs that work on rangelands and how you work with farmers and ranchers just generally. So NRCS really has three broad categories of programs that we offer. Our first being the land treatment programs, and these are the ones that our farmers and ranchers really tend to get the most connected with. There are EQIP, CSP, DIG, incentive contracts, so all kinds of acronyms, but essentially they're programs that help with the treatment of the land itself, so improving grazing management looking for wildlife habitat opportunities, distribution of livestock across the range so we have the healthiest communities possible. So that's one of our key programs that most producers are most aware of. We also have land protection programs, particularly on rangeland, our ag conservation easement program. We have a focus on grasslands of special significance. 
So areas that have endangered species or really key prime habitats, we can go in and help do a conservation easement on those properties so it protects it in perpetuity. And the best part about that program is those easements are held by a local entity and not by NRCS. So we partner with those land trusts or organizations that the farmers and ranchers most trust. And then our third big program that we offer is our watershed protection programs. So our Public Land 566 authorized the watershed and flood protection programs. Those are really that landscape scale, looking at an entire watershed, what those needs are. Often they focus on flood prevention and water infrastructure capacity, but they also have a lot of land treatment opportunities as well to help those local community members really look at that larger scale. How do we best address those big needs? So yeah, NRCS, you know, we work very closely with these in partnership with the local landowners on those private lands to make sure that we're best addressing their needs, but also impacting that larger natural resource need that, you know, the communities need, the public needs. Everyone needs good natural resources and, and solid land in the long run. Absolutely. So some of your comments there focused on some of your private lands partnerships, but you also started to touch on some of the landscape scale work that you do. So what I would love to hear you explain from your side is, you know, when NRCS does work on those landscape scale projects and either works with U.S. Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management, how does that process really work where you are assisting them with some of the management priorities that they have and looping it in with your own programmatic offerings? Yeah, you know, it really starts with those local relationships. So we have district conservationists in each of our counties across the country, and it really does start with them connecting with the field managers or forest district rangers so that we can really understand at that local level what, what they're working on and what we're working on, where we can align their NEPA efforts with our planning efforts so that when we're doing work, we can leverage it with what they're doing. Ideally, the best projects that we have are when we can add up our land adjacent to their land and really make that impact go much, much farther. But again, it comes back to those local relationships. So the conservation districts are key in that as well. They help lead the locally led efforts of NRCS. And in fact, they chair the local working group, which is a statutory requirement for NRCS to gather that local input. And so the conservation district pulls together those local community members and often Forest Service and BLM are at that table helping discuss what those local priorities are. And then at the state level, we talk quite regularly with those partners and our CS is a big partner in the shared stewardship efforts throughout the state, really increasing what we can do to help with the private land component of the forestry issues and the wildfire issues that we face in the West. And so, you know, building those relationships at the state level also really helps to make sure that we're bringing our resources together with theirs and just leveraging it all so it goes even farther. You know, the reason that WGA tends to focus so much on how all of that interconnectedness works is just because of how pervasive some of the natural resource challenges can be in the West, whether it's invasive species or wildfires that are hundreds of thousands of acres. But I think the one challenge that really is at the top of everyone's mind is the drought across the West and the pretty catastrophic effects from 2021 on growers and communities just all across the West. So I would love to hear what are some of the offerings that NRCS has that can help either individuals or communities respond to, to drought impacts and conditions and just how folks can leverage those programs. 
It comes back to the suite of programs that NRCS offers, depending on what that particular need is. If it's an on-farm irrigation system that we need to increase the efficiency on so that they can be sustainable into the future, our land treatment programs really can help target that on-farm component. When we start looking at larger infrastructure issues for water delivery, making sure that it's the most effective and efficient. We commonly see open ditches that we want to look at piping so that we can save the most water possible and not lose any to evaporation or infiltration into those soils. So our watershed protection programs, those help a lot with those larger infrastructure problems. And then we're, you know, we do a lot with things like soil health so that we can make sure that those soils are sustainable and they can retain as much water as possible. Every drop of rain that falls in the West is precious commodity. And so when we can have the healthiest soils possible, they retain that moisture longer, they're easier to manage, and we just have healthier crops as a result. So there are a lot of different opportunities to address drought in the West. I think the key thing at this point is looking at what the biggest impacts are and where we have the most need. And that's, I think, the key challenge for conservation communities right now is prioritizing where do we most need to invest because there's certainly not enough money to do all the work that needs to be done. And so we're looking here in Utah to really strategize where's the best bang for our buck, where can we leverage our funding the most with our partners and those local communities that are really trying to invest in these large infrastructure projects. Yeah, that prioritization piece is key and kind of plays into my next question, which is, do you see any low-hanging fruit opportunities in terms of promoting drought mitigation or resilience? Or if you had $100 million more million to throw at water conservation projects in Utah, where do you think the most bang for that buck would be? I think in the West, especially, irrigation infrastructure is a huge low-hanging fruit most of our producers need water to grow their crops. We have very little dry land agriculture in the West. And so that's a huge resource need, but we need it for food security and for long-term production of the forage and fiber and food that we all need to live our lives. So, But the fact is natural resources don't know boundaries at all, right? So where we can really make sure that we're addressing our priorities and leveraging it with our partners' funding most of our conservation programs at this watershed scale require communities to put in a fair share of their own resources. So we're really taking those resources, the local communities that they bring to the table and helping invest in those priorities that way. I think a lot of public discourse about natural resources management tends to focus on Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management and you know large federal inholdings of public land. But a lot of what NRCS does really is on the private side with individual landowners or groups of landowners. So could you just talk about why you think that's so important, both from ecological standpoints, but also community health and economic development and why those private allotments are also important to include in land management goals? Private lands, that's where the food and fiber of this country is grown. And so it is a really important resource for our communities. And for the public as a whole, but not only do we grow food and fiber on those lands, that land is where we get clean water, where we get air quality benefits, where we receive all these ecologically important benefits that affect all of us as human beings on this planet. And so the private land piece, in my perspective, is what really brings together the public land component. It's kind of the piece that links it all together. 
And many of those producers on our private lands also operate on permits on Forest Service or BLM. And so what they implement on their private lands and what they've found to be successful that really helps to make, make sure that their resources last into the future and that they have good, productive, economically viable operations, that knowledge extends onto the management that they're doing on the public lands as well. So I think it really does kind of this big link of chains of land that we bring together and the private landowners really help link that all together into one big massive collaboration across the landscape. One thing I always think about is the fact that a lot of really high quality habitat in the West is located on private lands just because that's often where the water tends to be for agriculture and from early settlement days. And so I think from a, a wildlife component, there's a lot of opportunity to be gained for ecological health by targeting some projects on private lands. You mentioned it earlier when talking about NRCS's planning role, but I would love to hear more about how NRCS is engaged in landscape planning with communities and how communities can help realize some of their land management goals by partnering with NRCS. Yeah, so on our watershed operations side, you know, that's a very involved process where we get public input, local stakeholders coming to the table, reviewing everything that we're doing at that landscape level. And we take all of that input very seriously. So when we get that feedback locally, we adjust our recommendations and plans. But at the end of the day, the decision maker comes back to that local community. So we're providing a technical resource. We're providing scientifically sound information so we can get that best impact on the landscape. But the decision makers are those local communities. There's two other areas where that landscape level collaboration is really key. We have a regional conservation partnership program, and that's a, a way to bring targeted funding into a community for those local priorities. But in order to get that funding, there has to be local input. There has to be partner engagement. And so those resources that we're investing can go much farther. Typically what we invest there in those projects, we get a leveraged benefit of at least one-to-one, if not much greater than that. So we're targeting resources to those local priorities with the partnerships that we have there. And then in Utah, we're also extending that vision to what we're calling our Utah's focused opportunities. And so it's another way to have that local engagement to bring together strategies for targeted investments so that we can really make some outcomes on the landscape by engaging local communities, making sure that those priorities are set, and then targeting our funding to those particular focused landscape level opportunities so that we do have measurable outcomes. The issues we're facing are pretty wicked problems. They're, they're certainly not localized to an individual farmer ranch. So without looking at it at that larger scale, we're going to miss out on great opportunities. I think the example you shared with the Regional Conservation Partnership Program of needing a local community in place to help have that program get funding and be run properly really gets to the heart of this initiative that Governor Little is running and that in order to have healthy landscapes in the West, whether it's private lands or public lands or a mixture of the two, you really do need a vibrant, successful community in place to be a partner and to assist with those land management goals and have a workforce that can assist with restoration projects on public lands and things of that nature. So that sort of human environmental connection is really at the heart of this initiative. I did want to check, though, are there any sort of big successful projects in Utah on the landscape planning side that you wanted to highlight for our audience? 
I mean, there's so many, but there's one in particular that I think is a really neat example of how we can bring together what are seemingly disparate visions and missions and outcomes. So we work really closely with Camp Williams, a military installation. And that sounds like something that maybe isn't quite natural resource focused, but they have a military mission that they need to really have some good natural resource sustainability for. They need open space. They need wildlife habitat. And so through the RCPP partnership program, we've been able to work with them to target our conservation easements on the agricultural land around the military installation, as well as targeting habitat improvements so that they can continue to exercise their mission. But as a result, we have natural resource benefits. And so it's a really neat example of when we can bring together two different visions of what the outcomes need to be, we oftentimes find common solutions. And if we can find those common solutions, it doesn't matter if our end goals are exactly the same. We're finding common solutions that are benefiting all of us. That's great to hear. So one final program that I want to touch on before we go is the NRCS's Emergency Watershed Protection Program, which a lot of communities use for flood mitigation following a wildfire. So we'd just love to hear a bit more about that program and its role in the West, particularly in Utah and how communities that have been affected by wildfires can leverage this program. Yeah, that's an excellent program to deal with emergencies, especially in some of our rural communities where maybe the larger resources can't be targeted. Frequently after a a large fire or flood event, we'll get a call from those local sponsors and we send out a team right away. And in fact, on fires after a wildfire We have folks eligible to go out with those bear teams as the fire starts to wrap up so we can start to assess what those needs are as soon as possible. We want to get on that landscape as soon as we possibly can and identify what those needs are. So in Utah, we have great relationships with our community sponsors. We get folks out there right away to do our damage survey reports so we can see what the needs are. And then as soon as we get funding, we're able to turn it around and implement that and get it on the ground. Occasionally, the projects take a little longer just because of the land conditions or the design needs. But in general, we're turning those around in, you know, six months and getting the communities what they need. So, yeah, we've been very successful here in Utah, and it's certainly something that our communities really have benefited from after emergencies. Do you think that there's anything that federal agencies need in terms of support or prioritization strategies or anything like that to improve some of those? post-wildfire disaster programs, either EWP or other offerings that federal agencies provide to communities? More resources are, are always beneficial. Typically, our biggest limitation, like usual, is funding, uh, not being able to get our funding as quick as we'd like to see. But I think it, as long as we're building those relationships and as long as we're communicating early and often, to be able to get that support that we need. I think we're really positioned nicely to help these communities to recover from post-wildfire or flooding events. Well, Emily, we've talked about fire, flooding, invasive species, drought, so a lot of doom and gloom, but we'd love to hear just an optimistic take from you before we go. Despite all those challenges that I just mentioned, you know, what gives you hope about the future for healthy natural resources and rural communities in the West? That's a great question. So, you know, in the West, we are facing these really large, scary, wicked problems. But I think the, the advantage that we have in the West is that the West knows how to work together. The West knows how to take those local priorities and be grassroots led 
and bring the federal resources together with the state and local resources. So we really have that most valuable impact. And frankly, the West is resilient. People in the West know hard work and they know how to buckle down and get to common solutions and to make forward progress. So I think we are well positioned. It's not all doom and gloom on the horizon for sure. I think that's always a good message to deliver. I think the media wants us to always be doom and gloom, but good to hear from an expert that there is a reason to smile and think optimistically about some of these challenges. Emily, I just want to thank you so much for your comments today on behalf of WGA, but also uh, Governor Little's team up in Idaho. They really appreciate you contributing to this initiative. And thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West, presented by the Western Governors Association. To learn more about our ongoing work on natural resources management, please visit westgov.org. And be sure to join us next time as we continue to discuss critical issues facing the Western United States. Finally, WGA would like to thank Emily Fife for sharing her expertise on cross-boundary conservation strategies and the involvement of local communities in land management planning. Happy trails, everyone.